Here's this idea I've had in my head for a very long time. Um, if you're listening to this, look, you already listen to Newsweek. You already subscribe to my podcast. And for that, I am humongously always grateful. I cannot tell you how much it means to me that this weird 15-minute weekly podcast that I do, which makes fun of the news and, and kind of attempts new satire, is something that people listen to. And, and several hundred people listen to. I think we're over a thousand subscribers at this point, in fact. So that's remarkable in and of itself. And I cannot thank you enough. But... Newsweekly is a very particular thing. It's it's a tightly scripted, heavily researched podcast that I do once a week. It's 15 minutes long, but it takes almost a full day of prep work, writing, editing, researching, all those things that I do by myself. And while it does get a lot of my personal points across through the satire and the comedy that I try, it's not as freewheeling as some things that I'd like to be able to say would require to be if if that sentence makes sense um there's things that i have on my mind things that i've been researching things that i read about uh when i'm doing my research for news weekly and they don't quite make the podcast because they don't have the structure of a tightly scripted news satire joke um they're just points of view and I thought of launching a different podcast for that. I used to have a podcast called Sammy Says, and I thought maybe I'll put these on Sammy Says, but I don't want to go through the effort of doing that. I've got this audience right here built in, in Newsweekly. And so, you know, that capitalistic kind of opportunistic part of my brain says, well, let's just take advantage of that. So that's what I'm attempting. I am attempting to take advantage of you. So here's how it's going to work. Newsweekly editorial edition will be a bonus podcast that is going to come out Every, not every week, every few weeks, you know, whenever I can think of something that I think is worth talking about, sharing, uh, discussing things that I've been contemplating. And um, I'll put it out as a bonus edition. It'll be called the editorial edition. Um, and if you don't want to listen to it, if you want to just stick to the weekly 15 minutes tightly scripted, you know, news weekly podcast, then you can just ignore this episode. It won't come out on the same day as a regular one. It'll come out on a Wednesday or on a Monday or on a Friday, who knows? It'll come out on <laughs> on a Monday, or on a Tuesday, or on a Wednesday, or I don't know why I decided to list all the days of the week. But the idea being it's freewheeling, it comes out whenever it comes out. It's not a big deal. It's not very long. This probably, this intro introduction is going to make it sound a lot longer than it needs to be. Um, but it's a perfect example of what I want to do with the editorial edition, which is I just want to talk and have fun with it and explore ideas with it. I might get some guests on here. I might just talk myself. I might talk to people. I want to do something more with Newsweekly than I currently am. But only, you know, if I can manage the time. And, and that's also always a big challenge, of course. So... This is the first of the Newsweekly editorial editions. If you don't want to hear more of this, just turn it off. And, you know, the regular edition of Newsweekly will also be there every Friday morning as it is every Friday morning. Um, and you don't and you can just skip the editorial editions. But if you like them, well, here they are. I've been thinking a lot about Richard Nixon. Um, bear with me here. So Richard Nixon, uh, Tricky Dick, as he was known, was the uh, was a president of the United States of America. He was, I believe, the 37th president of the United States of America, serving from 1969 till his ignomin ignominious um, ouster in 1974. And 
Look, a lot of people know Nixon as the guy who did Watergate. You know, the Watergate scandal is Nixon's legacy. And he's Nixon is the president who, you know, if you have any visual image of Nixon in your head, it is him standing outside a helicopter, you know, throwing his arms wide and giving the V for victory sign before getting into a helicopter and flying away into the distance only to be interviewed on television many, many years later by a British journalist, um, which was then reenacted in the Frost Nixon movie. Um People don't realize that Richard Nixon was perhaps on the way to becoming, for reasons better than Watergate, one of the most important, if not influential, American presidents of all time. His legacy now is a very different legacy, right? His legacy now in American politics is as the guy who made the corruption inherent in American politics evident to the world. He made it evident to the American people. They, they, you know, many people say that there is a moment in American history which is the end of American idealism and American aspiration and optimism. Maybe the end of American optimism might have been the moment that the bullet struck John F. Kennedy. And the end of American idealism might be the moment that the Watergate scandal solidified into the resignation um, of the 37th president of the United States, uh, Richard Nixon. Now, I am not American. I am um, Pakistani. I grew up in Pakistan. I spent 35 years of my life in Pakistan. I did go to America for four years. And in those four years, I attended the University of Virginia. And at the University of Virginia, I studied a lot of American history. I kind of got into American politics a great deal. I've always been weirdly fascinated with American politics. I'm also weirdly fascinated with Roman politics and random things like that. So I don't know. Who knows why we like the things we like? I mean, there's a thing that I like, you know, about sexual fetishes where they say never ask where they come from. It might be a daddy issue. It just might be who knows what it is. But just don't ask questions. Just go with it um, as long as it's consensual. And I think the same thing can be said about interests in certain aspects of history. Don't ask where, why some people are more interested in the Mongols and the Nazis and, you know, the uh, American presidents than they are in the Middle Ages, high or low, or the Reformation or the Renaissance. You know, we never will know the answers to that question. But um, it was a thing that I've always been interested in, and is, is American politics, American presidents. Um, I think largely because it is the empire, right? It is the colonial ruler of the world, uh, you know, colonial being in a very loose sense, of course, but it's the, it's the great superpower of the world. It's a great superpower of the world that I was born into. I was born in 1978. Um, Nixon was already gone by 1974. I was born in a world of R Ronald Reagan and, and uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and the Cold War, the, the waning days of the Cold War, the, um, the war in Afghanistan and all these things. But it kind of was a very big part of the Pakistani upbringing. And so as a result, I got interested in all these people. And the more I read about Nixon, the more fascinating I found him. Unlike so many of the US presidents, particularly unlike so many of the US presidents these days, he did genuinely come from nothing. I think if, if you're going to draw a comparison to any American president um, that might be worth making, I think Richard Nixon reminds me of, and I know this is controversial to say, but Barack Obama more than anyone else. And I think it comes down to the, the humble beginnings. Um, and not just the humble beginnings. I mean, Richard Nixon came from nothing. He was born into nothing and he achieved so much from a start that was based in nothing. But it's more than that. 
The other thing is that Barack Obama and Richard Nixon, I think, share something in that they were the two most intellectually gifted U.S. presidents, at least, you know, since maybe FDR um, or Woodrow Wilson. Um, yeah, they, they, they're remarkable. The level of intellect that Nixon had, then the knowledge he had, the constant yearning for, you know, reading and, and growing his own brain and everything. Now, look, none of this takes away from the fact that he was corrupt. He was absolutely, um, you know, he was a part of the entire Red, the second Red Scare, which was you know, a huge part of the of America at that time. He was a part of the McCarthy trials and everything. He was a part of so many things in politics that were controversial. But the the, the difference is that a lot of what he was a part of then, which was con- considered cor- corruption, is now normalized in American politics. So a lot of the things that Richard Nixon was, um, you know, punished for would now not even be blinked at. In American politics, it was just a different time and a different age. Not to justify his things, he also did some things that are very, very questionable and very, very dangerous and have ruined the, you know, the. the, the for example, I'll give you this uh, as an example. We now know for a fact, um, beyond you know, a shadow of a doubt, that Nixon was part of a secret negotiation with um, Vietnamese uh, elements in the Vietnamese North Vietnamese government to make sure that there was no armistice, there was no peace treaty between North and South Vietnam and the United States of America until he won the election. I mean, that is genuinely an act of treason. He, His party and him personally were collaborating with the foreign government to influence American politics. That is you know, an act of um, uh, betrayal or an act of... Uh, What's the word? I'm blanking over here. See, this is why I like this version of the podcast. I can blank on a word for a few seconds. Um, act of treason. It was an act of treason up there, I would argue, with the unsubstantiated. To a degree, they have been substantiated a little bit. Claims that, you know, Donald Trump was negotiating with, if not at at the very least, listening to Russian intelligence reports about the Democratic Party. So, you know, Nixon did that. Nixon also was part of a concerted effort to flood inner cities in America with drugs that turned those inner cities into ghettos. You know, the, uh, the, the amount of opiates and drugs that were flooded into there was a part of a genuine on the transcripts recorded in White House transcripts conversations he had about dealing with the hippie crisis and, you know, the civil rights movements. Um, and he wanted to flood those areas with drugs. These are things that we know about him and they are horrific. Um, but there's other things that were also interesting about him, which is his intellect and his level of of you know strategic planning. The fact that he when after he lost to uh, John F. Kennedy and then after that he, he lost an election for the governor, governorship of California, he decided he was done with politics. He walked away. He very famously said, "You know, you'll never have Nixon to kick around anymore to the media." Um, and then he made a comeback. You know, in the 1968 elections. Richard Nixon was able to become the president of the United States of America after de- defeating Hubert Humphrey, who was going to take over from Lin- Lyndon B. Johnson, also a Democratic president, who was handed the presidency after the death of, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy, a Democratic president, and 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 he also beat George Wallace, an American independent president, uh, candidate, and it was a resounding victory. It was a much larger victory than anyone had anticipated. And it comes down to political um, savvy and it comes down to intelligence. But the thing, look, I can go on about Nixon for ages. And, and, And if you want to hear more about Nixon, but like in a brief way, there's a few podcasts I should actually recommend. Um, there's one that I've been binging very recently, um, 
And it's called, uh, let me get the name up right now, Nixon at War. And it is a fantastic podcast that's basically been researched by Kurt Anderson, who's a writer and a journalist. And it kind of goes into the uh, Vietnam War and the Nixon election of 68 and, and kind of his relationship with that whole thing. It's a really good podcast. There's another one by Royfield Brown called 10 American Presidents. And the first episode of 10 American Presidents podcast is historian, you know, amateur historian, as he calls himself, but I think at this point he pretty much is a historian, Dan Carlin, um, the, um, you know, the creator of the Hardcore History podcast, uh, talks about Nixon in that, in the first episode of 10 American Presidents. So 10 American Presidents, episode one by Dan Carlin, um, and is about Nixon and his election and everything. And then, you know, Nixon at War. Two excellent podcasts, fantastic bi biographies that have been written about Nixon at great length and his relationship with his mother and his insecurities and his paranoia and all of these things. That's not what I want to talk about right now. I don't know why I went down that long detour, but fuck it. This is my podcast. If you don't like it, you can tune out. This is me being unnecessarily aggressive because I've had two glasses of wine. But the thing I've been thinking about is the fact that Nixon won in 1968, despite it being, you know, still at the height of the hippie movement. When you think of the 60s, you know, the, the 60s, the 70s, you think of the hippie movement. Uh, and the hippies... Because that's the way pop culture has presented the 60s to us. I mean, 1968 was the birth of heavy metal and reggae, both musical genres that were very heavily influenced by the hippie movement. Um, you know, we had, uh, there was a thing, uh, Abby Hoffman, who was an American, uh, I don't even know how to, you know, act, I guess political activist and everything. It was part of the Chicago 7, if you've seen that terrible movie. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, directed and written by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it's a terrible movie, don't bother watching that. But, um, you know, yeah, Abby Hoffman was a major part of that. And one of the big things they tried doing was that uh, they tried levitating the Pentagon with the power of meditation. This is the height of the hippie movement. I mean, when you genuinely, uh, for attention, are going to try something like that. It's also the year of the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where um, they tried, the hippie movement tried running an actual pig against the Democratic candidate, which was... Um, Hubert Humphreys, and uh, they, you know, there, there was riots, the National Guard was called out, called out 23,000 police, you know, officers were there, people were beaten, um, tear gassed, everything. It was a major time of the flower power movement and, and its, its, you know, effect on popular culture, which is humongously overstated. Because Nixon came up with a very, very interesting strategy. Um... He came up with the idea that it's not just anti-war protesters who are the majority of Americans. I mean, the, the, the Vietnam War wasn't popular. And Nixon's in main strategy for winning the election was to say that he's the president who's going to end the Vietnam War. Like, that was his whole thing. When he became president, his whole bombing campaign of Cambodia and the whole madman rhetoric that he created and persona he created with Henry Kissinger was focused on ending the Vietnam War because that was the promise he made and that's what the American people cared about. But the American people in majority were not in favor of the hippie movement. They were as frightened of the hippies as they were of American soldiers dying in Vietnam, which is why Nixon came up with the phrase, the silent majority. 
It was a key phrase that he used in his speeches that they are more than just these people that you see on TV at protest marches on college campuses, you know, trying to say that America should be a certain way. Um, The far left of that time, he said there's a silent majority. There's Americans with quiet dignity. Um, There's Americans who um, have a certain yearning for a more respectful time and a more dignified America. And they are the ones that he was speaking to. It was a giant risk and it was a risk that paid off humongously so. All right. Not many people realize this, but... I mean, if you think about Nixon, you think about Watergate, but if you think about Nixon, you have to remember that he won at the time when the entire leftist movement in America was at its most popular. The baby boomers of this generation who priced all of the houses out of existence um, were the hippies of that generation. And they were the ones who basically wanted free love, wanted a changed world, wanted, you know, you know, the end of racism, the end of war, more peace, all of these things. And they went about it in a very particular way, but it's a way that was considered very obnoxious by a lot of people. And Nixon was able to leverage that that paranoia, that fear, that exhaustion with their um, obnoxiousness, with the, with the change that they were asking for that wasn't going to be implemented according to the leftist movement strategies at a reasonable enough pace for the, for the quiet American, right? Um, I made a joke in, in this last week's edition of News Weekly about the quiet Australian, that I've never heard a quiet Australian. Uh, but I want to come back to that in a bit. So just keep that in mind. But, you know, this was a time when there should have been no chance for Nixon to win the election. It should have been led by the leftists and these young people, these 18-year-olds and who were able to vote and who were getting out there and protesting and getting shot at and by soldiers on the streets and, and being tear-gassed by the police and the music was happening and 69 was the year of Woodstock, you know, the... They had People's Park and they had all the strawberry fields. And, you know, it was the, it was the time of so much change of Ken Casey, Casey and the May pranksters of the anti-war protests and movement and underground press like the East Village Other and all these things were happening. And yet an old man with no charisma who lost to John F. Kennedy, you know, apocryphally at least, on the back of a single televised debate in which the people saw him sweating with you know lip sweat and dry mouth and and all of these things against a polished handsome movie star level John F Kennedy and they voted for Kennedy even though you know people who heard that debate on radio thought Nixon had won it um you know this is the guy that won the election there was no way that Americans Based on the image we have of America in 1968 of a, of a hippie flooded America should have voted for someone as utterly and completely dull and boring and old school dull and old school or you won't have tricky dick to kick around anymore. Richard Nixon should have won and yet he did. And I think there's something in that. I think the fact that the perception of the power and influence of the hippie movement versus the reality of how small, how inconsequential it was at the time, maybe in the years to come, it has had a greater influence. You know, it has influenced music. 
and art and culture and society and the lessons of that movement are the the new capitalism we see today and 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 late stage capitalism is a result of those things and 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 there's so much of modern politics as a result of those things there's so many of those people who were hippies then became politicians later and all of that stuff sure but despite the influence they have now on our understanding of america then they couldn't make a difference in america then the america then was an america that didn't like them didn't want them and voted a person in who would put a stop to them and i've been thinking about that in relation to our modern state right now like here in australia but also america like a lot less i don't want to talk about america anymore i feel like this is you know obviously with the focus on nixon this is so america centric already it's not my point it's not my purpose i think australia and australian elections which are you know coming up this year at you know within the next couple of months most probably by may we'll probably have the election i think there's something to be learned from there i think there's something important that we need to pay attention there and i think the thing is that the things that you and i i who make this podcast and i'm on twitter all the time and on the social medias and i'm paying attention to the news obsessively because i i, I study journalism and i'm and i'm teaching journalism and i'm working in journalism and i'm making a journalism satire podcast and all these things and you who because you listen to this means you're obviously a journalism fanatic just like myself or at least a news fanatic just like myself and love politics and are obsessed with politics and all these things i think we are the rarity we are not the norm i think both sides of the people that you see arguing in australia today the the conservative far right as epitomized by sky news after dark and all the people on social media and twitter that you are fighting with and the and the left and the far left and you know epitomized by the woke movement and the crt advocates and the and the and the you know the culture warriors and and my twitter account and benjamin law's twitter account and you know everyone else's twitter accounts we're all i don't know why I threw benjamin in there but you know just as an example the fact that you if you know who i am or benjamin is or or you know any of us these are things that where the extremes and we think we have a huge influence on culture and society and the media portrays it as so but i think even the media's influence on culture and society isn't as big as we think it is because the media back then in 1968 had the same level of influence relative to their time that the media has today i know some people will say we have 24 hour news we have twitter we have facebook we have all of these things um how can the media now be more influential than three tv channels back then with maybe you know a, a news bulletin every few hours but because that then was new to their world and the influence it had on their world then is no different from the influence that the printing press had in the 1500s and no difference than social media and the 24 news channel is having now society is constantly being rocked and and shook by a media a news media or a media of communication that is is changing our understanding of the world we live in in detrimental ways in positive ways all those arguments can be made but in ways that i think more and more need to be understood as overstated i'll give you an example jk rowling if you think of jk rowling 
you're thinking of the controversies around J.K. Rowling. You're thinking about the fact that J.K. Rowling is either a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, or she is a woman who's speaking for women's rights against the erosion of those rights in the face of trans rights. Um, you think that J.K. Rowling is a culture warrior. You think that J.K. Rowling is cancelled. You think many things. Here's what you don't think of. It's the fact that uh, the paperback edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was the fifth best-selling children's book of 2020, 23 years after it was published. That even now, sales of the Harry Potter books go up, not down. If you think of Lin-Manuel Miranda, you'll think of the controversies of Lin-Manuel Miranda around, um, you know, the representation of black people in Hamilton and how people are now sick of Lin-Manuel Miranda's appropriation of certain culture, and it's particularly in things like In the Heights and Freestyle Love Supreme, his improv hip-hop Broadway show, blah, blah, blah. Except Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was pegged to write the, the music for uh, Encanto, the Disney cartoon, and which is uh, which is overthrown or unseated the Frozen soundtrack in terms of popularity. And the Hamilton soundtrack is still in the top 200, in the top hundreds, in fact, of um, um, Rolling Stones, oh, so the Billboard charts. The things that we think matter, because we see them mattering on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, don't actually matter to most people. The we pay attention to the news obsessively. So we know that Scott Morrison did this and Ben Robert Smith did that and, and, and you know, and Craig Kelly's doing this and, and Anthony Albanese is saying that and all these things. We know these things because we are obsessed with the news. Most people aren't. Most people are living their lives and, and focusing on the day-to-day and they get largely the broad strokes and even then they don't really pay attention to them. They pay attention to more, if I can quote from an Australian classic, the vibe. And I know that because I started looking at some of the social media numbers. So, Facebook which is in Australia, for example, we have Facebook as one of the most controversial platforms. People hate Facebook. Everyone hates Facebook. No one likes Facebook. Well, Facebook is at 17 million followers in Australia as of December 2021. So I'm looking at the numbers from December 2021, according to Civic Web Media, which is basically a company that keeps track of social media following the numbers across Australia, right? So according to Civic Web Media, um, which does a lot of research with Vivid Social, um, there, and by December 2021, Facebook had 17 million followers up 500,000 from December 2020. So in one year, they went up. YouTube, up. WhatsApp, up by 4 million people in the last year in Australia, which I think is really interesting. I think it largely has to do with immigrant population in Australia wanting to communicate with families abroad now that they couldn't see those families abroad during lockdown, etc., etc., etc. This is the rankings of the most popular social media websites. Facebook, number one, YouTube, number two, WhatsApp, number three, Instagram, number four, LinkedIn, number five, Snapchat, number six, WordPress, number seven, Twitter, number eight. Twitter is holding steady year to year at 5.8 million followers in Australia. It's not going up. It's not really going down. It's largely just staying the same. You're thinking, well, 5.8 million followers in a country of, what, 23, 24 million people, which is what Australia is, not too bad, right? It still has a big influence. 
Except I'm not really that sure about that because 5.8 million people on Twitter doesn't mean 5.8 million people actively engaging with Twitter. And we can kind of draw some comparisons from research done by the Pew Research Center in America very, very recently where they found that only 20, and I'm quoting here from the Pew Research Institute, uh, Pew Research Center's research, um, only 23% of US adults use Twitter. And of those users, the most active 25% produce 97% of all tweets. In other words, nearly all tweets come from less than 6% of American adults. That is not a good cross-section of society by any measure at all. There's not that many people on Twitter and of the not that many people on Twitter, there's even fewer people actively on Twitter creating content on Twitter and the ones who are creating content are creating most of the content. I mean, just looking at my own output, you know, for example, I tweet a lot. I think I have done, according to my own stats, 47.9 thousand tweets. I have tweeted 47.9 thousand times in the last 13 years or so that I've been on this godforsaken app. What am I doing? What are we all doing? Why are we putting so much time, effort, and content out into this app that has minimal influence, that has not just got minimal influence and minimal worth and value that we're not being paid to do this for anyway, but also has confused us on the things that matter in the world. If Twitter goes silent tomorrow and we're all kicked off it, I don't think it'll have any effect on the election outcome any more than Twitter currently being active um that's bizarre that is a very strange thing when you think about it the the the, the influence on culture that we think comes from this one place because it influences us so much is actually the fringe we are on the outskirts of society we are in the liminal zone um it makes me think a lot of um I can't remember the exact word uh phrase for it I think it was outsider art that's it. Outsider art. Um, so outsider art, for those of you who don't know, is, it's a term usually used to refer to self-taught or, or, or naive artists outside of the mainstream, often who are suffering from extreme state, mental states. Right. So an example of an outsider art is a there was, I believe, I'm trying to remember the exact name of the person, um, but there was a janitor at a high school who was found at one point to have created an entire series of books in his personal time detailing this entire complex world, fantasy world with its own languages, with its own religions, with its own culture, with its own everything. Unreadable absolutely unreadable but hundreds and thousands of pages long right and and so in and of itself it can it, it, it is a work of art but it has very little to no influence on mainstream art and it has very little no influence on the rest of the world because a lot of times we don't even know it exists all of us on twitter you and i we are indulging in mainstream we're indulging sorry in outsider art we're creating things that no one cares about except us and the other mentally ill people like us. I'm not making fun of the mentally ill people over here, but you know, you get my point, I'm sure. I think you know, the things that we think that matter, 
For example, we think woke issues matter, cancel culture matters. We think all of these things, you know, or we think the opposite of those, that, that, that cancel culture and, and, and woke issues are the end of society and civilization. We think that they will save society and civilization or they will end society and civilization. I think they will have nil effect in the long run on society and civilization. If they have any effect, it just means in 10 years or 15 years from now, some residual elements of those will make their ways into movies or music or art or something like that, but not more than that. Um, and I think my understanding of why that is so comes back to Richard Nixon's 1968 election because the hippie movement or the hippies that we thought was so central to American society and culture and thus global society and culture couldn't stop a man like Richard Nixon from being elected because what he wanted Americans to care about was what Americans actually cared about, which is none of the things that we thought that they cared about. And I think the same will hold true in the next Australian election. I think it's not the far left and it's not the far right that's going to win that election. It's going to be the middle, this silent majority, these quiet Australians that I insist aren't quiet, that are always fucking talking, but we're not listening. There are Australians falling in the forest, but no one's hearing them. And therein lies the real challenge. Will Anthony Albanese or Scott Morrison pay attention to the quiet Australians? Are they perhaps already tapped into the quiet Australians? Are the, is the fact that both of their campaigns are so frustrating to all of us, us, you know, intelligentsia of Australia, as we like to think we are, you know, the people who are on Twitter and on Facebook and on Reddit and reading, you know, listening to all the podcasts and downloading all this stuff and subscribing to the Saturday paper and, and watching Sky News After Dark, you know, all of us, the stuff that we care about, is it utterly and completely irrelevant? And that's why we're not seeing it reflected in the election campaigning of both major parties or are both major parties making a big mistake by catering to us and this is why we're going to see the rise of the independents because the independent is not listening to these things the independent is listening to the things that matter to the quiet australian that's all i have for this week's first edition of a news weekly editorial edition um, if you like this, uh, do tell me. I, I want to know what you think, in fact. Don't just tell me. I want to know whether you like it or not. I want to know what you think. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I talking shit? Um, I mean, you can join my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Shah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. And I'm more than happy to hear your conversations there, discussions there. But you can hit me up on email as well. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H at gmail.com. Send me an email. Um, I don't reply to all of my emails. Just not because I don't care, but because I'm just bad at replying to emails, professional and personal. But I will definitely try. I think it's an interesting conversation topic at the very least, even if I'm 100% wrong. And... Um, I like thinking about these things and I'd like you to think of them with me. So, News Weekly will be back, of course, this Friday with the next edition of News Weekly. Thank you so much for your support and patronage of that podcast, as always. Um, and also tickets to my Melbourne International Comedy Festival show are currently available. This show is called Unappreciated. Um, it is running from the tw- 31st of March to the 24th of April at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at the Chinese Museum. It's a venue. Don't ask. They gave it to me. Um... It's a 6.30pm show, so it's nice and early, and it's uh, it's a show that I hope you will enjoy. By the way, uh, everyone who's already been a member of my Patreon just got a free ticket each to the Melbourne National Comedy Festival show, so you should have joined. 
Um, but if you do join now, I might throw something for your way as well. Maybe another free ticket. I'm feeling pretty generous these days. Um, I love all of you and I appreciate all of you. And thank you so much. Take care of yourself. And I'll see you right back here in a couple of days on News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. 